Hey everybody, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Banshees of Inisherin from 2022. Uh, just was in the Academy Awards and has been a pretty big movie. We do recommend you watch it ahead of time. Uh, we assume it makes this conversation more interesting to listen to. So John, what is Banshees of Inisherin about? Mike, Banshees of Inisherin is a beautiful and heartwarming tale of friendship and found family, set against the backdrop of idyllic mid-20th century rural Ireland. We join a colorful and witty cast of characters as they navigate the small-town trials of misunderstandings, petty disagreement, and various kooky hijinks, all the while learning that it really is about the friends you make along the way. Two big thumbs up and away for Banshees of Inishirin. <laughs> I wasn't sold. It really the... was just about the thumbs, right? Oh, like, I wasn't sold the, the whole on the bit. Thing. Yeah, I was like, ah, this is kind of an obvious take. That was pretty funny. Thank that you. was fantastic. Wait, wait, let me say um, real quick. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. You didn't say, I'm disappointed. You didn't even try to say Beckett. Like, no, I never did. Never did. everybody welcome once again to this film could be your life it is a film podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously as always i'm jonathan devine joined by mike overstreet you like donkeys john okay (laughs) (laughs) it's it's crazy because that's not even from this movie it's just another (laughs) it's just something irish people who aren't being portrayed by irish people for what's worth in another movie say so I i feel like you're problematic right now Problematic. I'm just say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> as discussed, we're as discussed, we're uh, talking this week about the Banshees of Inisherin, which is a 2022 black tragic comedy. Yeah, check Wikipedia's out. opinion. Yeah, that's, okay. that's fair. Uh, directed, written, and produced by Martin McDonough. Set on a remote island off the west coast of Ireland, it stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two lifelong friends who find themselves at an impasse. When mm. one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both. Checks out. Uh, like I said, it stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keoghan. The cinematography was Ben Davis. It was edited by Mikkel Nielsen. The music was by Carter Burwell. And it came out in 2022. Was nominated for a lot of awards and got, frankly, destroyed by uh, Everything Everywhere all at once. So Got shut cool. out by a man in yeah. a fat suit. As 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 happens, you know, we all have have tough times in life. So sorry to Martin McDonough. Shout out to him. Um, <laughs> this is actually the second Martin McDonough movie we've talked about. I, I want to say our third or or maybe even second episode. Very early. Yeah, we yeah. did in Bruges, uh, which I, I think at the time qualified as one of our collective favorite movies. Uh, probably still holds up. We're, you're still up on In Bruges? Oh, it's yeah, been a few for years. Sure. 100%. I tend to agree. Um, I actually never did see his... Uh, so in between them, Martin McDonough made uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, the 2017 Francis McDormand movie also did very well in the award seasons, et cetera, et cetera. Martin McDonough at this point, I think, has... It's funny. I, I, I like actually this interesting thing that I, I feel like he's one of the only directors 
working now that I actually did get in pretty early on his stock. Yeah. Because yeah. I want to say when you got me into in Bruges, he wasn't really much of a a particularly big international figure yet. That right? was his. No. I mean, I saw in Bruges in theaters and he was a total unknown. Now, it right. should be noted that he was very famous abroad in the theater scene because that's where he got right. his start big as a theater guy. Yeah. So, but in, when Mimbarish came out, if in terms of Hollywood and cinema, complete unknown. Yeah. And, and have you, so, so we started by talking about our history with the movie. The movie is so recent that it, you know, we both saw it in, in 2022. I guess Mike did see it and then had me watch it later. Um, so we don't have too much of a like long storied history with this specific movie. Uh, so Mike, I'm curious about your relationship with McDonough. And then also, I, I guess, you know, your your first viewings and, and thoughts about this movie um, when you saw it last year. Yeah, yeah. So uh, huge fan of McDonough. Love his work. You know, I think I think all of it, like any director, there's hit and misses. But what I love about him is the consistency is that none of them are bad. Like even Three Billboards, which yeah. is a movie that got pretty dragged for some, I think, fair and unfair reasons. Even it is still wildly entertaining it has some thought-provoking pieces there are problematic elements but it's not problematic to the point where it's like green book and you're just like this is garbage right yeah. so there's still something to recommend about it and and that's i don't know is there anything better you can say about most directors that they don't have a bust i think that's actually a pretty big feat in a lot of ways um yeah and yeah this was one of my favorite movies of the year i think it in terms of his larger canon of work I think this is a, a fascinating artifact. I did see this in theaters. Um, we're going to talk about how it's different in a lot of ways from some of his other movies. But what most struck me is that this movie really felt like a return to a, um, I guess, a setting that he's very comfortable with, which is obviously Ireland sure. um, and also a, a, a style of character that he's very comfortable with, which are these angry Irish men, right? And you kind of, whatever you feel about this movie, one thing that I thought was very clear is that he was very much in his element making it. Like this, I don't like saying a return to form because I don't think he lost, he hasn't made anything bad. But I do think that in a lot of interesting ways, this ended up being kind of a a tonal and stylistic return to like the what we found and fell in love with in Bruges. As well as yeah. some elements that go way beyond it, which I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Um, oh, also, I want to note, this is also, interestingly, his most grounded movie in terms of stakes and scale. No action yeah. set pieces. I didn't think about it until yeah. you said that, but that's super true. Yeah, Very small scale and very um, claustrophobic, obviously, uh, but not, not action-packed like a lot of his movies recently have been. So interesting flick by him. I would say, and and this is characteristic of, of playwrights often, as much as it is grounded, it is still giving you a situation that I, I don't believe anyone could reasonably say that they've experienced. No. You know, it, it no. is a very unique experience, but from a technical standpoint, yeah, it's a very well, contained, plausible story. And I do not want to get into a ton of this because we got into this a lot with M. Bruges. But we always have to keep in mind that as a, a writer and director, he is just obsessed with fables. He is obsessed with yeah. fairy tales. He is obsessed with allegory. And that's what this movie is. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the the bare, you know, setting in the terms of like these concrete elements, very grounded in terms of the ideas he's wrestling with through the situations he puts these people into. 
definitely more of a fable than it is something that is ever going to happen in your daily life in New York, John. I don't know. Maybe you know people who cut off their fingers, but uh, most of us no, don't. Not, haven't seen that here either. No, I, I, I would I would say that. Um, yeah, I, I think I've had maybe a similar journey with McDonough. I think in some ways I, I can be a little bit... Um, I think that the the side of him that leans into metaphor and allegory, when it works, it's great. Every now and then, it feels like he he tips his hand a little bit. Yeah, I think that might have been what happened with three billboards. Um, depending on who you talk to, I agree with you that I don't think it would have sunk the movie. But it, you know, there's a there's an element of just like okay, take take a breath, sir. You know, like, yeah, like we, yeah, we get it. You, I feel like sometimes I get like that with his movies, where there's a moment where I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, right. like you know, you're, you're leaning in pretty hard here. Um, having said that, I think it's funny. You said that he doesn't have a miss, and I, I agree with you. I think that what's also very important when talking about him as a creator is just how distinctive his, his voice is. Yeah. Like, I, I think, you know, if I didn't know, he, I guess he doesn't have a large catalog of movies, but... You know, if you showed me one of his movies and I didn't know it was him, I could probably pick it out just from the, I, I, I especially, and, and, you know, we're starting to, to touch on our first category, but especially in the context of like writing, yes. I think he's such a strong writer and he's, he's has such a particular way of characterizing his, his characters and of giving them voice. And, and it's somewhere between nihilism and wittiness and ethical grayness and morality play like all of these things get fused into these characters and make them ex like fascinating i'll say and, and actually that's a good segue to my experience with this movie as i told mike mike um uh technically mike had seen this movie last year and i watched it explicitly for this podcast sort of as a extension of what we did with the last episode um finally enough after watching the movie uh, when I first talked to Mike about it, I told him that my initial reaction was vehement dislike. <laughs> I, I really, really did not like this movie. Um, that was very, very early response. Since then, thinking about it, and actually I went back, I didn't quite rewatch all of it, but I sort of rewatched most of it and kind of skimmed through some of it. I I've come away with a lot more complex feelings towards it. Um which I, which you know, in a sense, I don't. I I, I just want to preview because we're going to actually be talking about that here. Uh, but that element of it, like the style that he puts into it, and and his his fingerprints are extremely effective, and and still very potent. Like he's been doing that for all of his work, as far yeah. as I can tell. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see one of his plays. By the way, he's written a lot of plays. Like it was funny doing the, some of the research for this and realizing, like, I I want to say his his playwright credits are like double or triple his like film oh it's credits. it's wild like, it's absolutely wild yeah he was making like two or three a year there first it's crazy it's insane yeah. <laughs> yeah and i feel like i would just be really fascinated in what those would look like yeah. um so yeah uh i think with that we just want to probably jump in right mike i'm ready yeah all right that's uh, so we go. divide the podcast we divide the podcast into a few different sections. We start by just talking about why the movie works. Uh, we'll get into maybe then what holds it back, some stray thoughts, and then later on we'll have some dialogue diving into some aspect of the movie. 
So we already kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'd, I'd like to start, uh, if it's okay, Mike, with just the writing side of things. Because yes. in a sense, I think it's so strong. And it, it for me anyways, it was the first impression I get from the movie, right? Is everything else aside, we're going to talk about plot, pacing, cinematography, acting, all this great stuff. But again, it's it's both his fingerprints so vividly over the over the work but it's also for me what what keeps me most enthralled with the movie i think especially the first half is is very light on on action and i I don't mean like action action but i mean like something happening yeah from a certain perspective the first three quarters of the movie almost nothing really happens and that whole time i think you're you're really invested because of the storytelling um, because of the ways that the characters are actually talking to each other and, uh, you know, just engaging with, with each other and the world around them. They're incredible. There's a lot of humor in this, just like his other movies. Um, there's a lot of just amazing character moments. And yeah, and I love how each character has very distinct, a very distinct voice, a yes. very, you know, particular way of looking at the world and engaging with it you know the most obvious one is is our title character Patrick played by um Colin Farrell obviously who at the beginning of the movie at least has this you know bubbly charm to him almost and and bordering on naivete which the movie itself then addresses as a concern of his um but you think about comparing him with obviously Colm is, is the main one Brendan Gleeson who has this who's going through this kind of strange midlife thing and is has this much more reserved and contemplative way of looking at the world, but still with this edge of cynicism. Um, you think about Dominic, I think, is maybe the most singular character in terms of how mm-hmm. he speaks. Yeah. Just all time annoying character, but also yes. also you feel you, you I think you do feel a certain like affection towards him which obviously pays off horrifically by the end of the movie. Um, But yeah, I I just love the way that the characters speak. I love the way that Martin McDonough puts words in people's mouths. He's so good at at creating a sort of rich tapestry of relationships between characters, right? Which is all this movie is. So it has to succeed in that that respect. Um, Which I, you know, we don't always do this, Mike, but just to to state it, because we, we never technically did, the entire premise of the movie is that you have these two friends in rural Ireland in the t- turn of the century. And one day, one of them just tells the other, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or even more to the point, I don't want you to talk to me anymore. I want to do other things and we're not friends anymore. And basically, it's just dealing with the fallout of that kind of situation. And then things escalate pretty dramatically from there. Um, so that like, a, you know, kind of like I was saying that premise works because of the relationships between the characters. Yeah. So you have to really buy each character's indiv- individuality and each character's, you know, connection with each other. Um, that was a lot of words, but I, I just think the writing is for me, if I had to pick out one thing that works the best, I think that's just the easiest to, to pinpoint. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't really disagree with any of that, and I wouldn't want to. I mean, there's a delightful simplicity to the premise, as you pointed out, on its most surface level, that 
makes this such a a cool construct of a film because like you said on one hand it could be an allegory about the nature of violence inherent to man and on the other hand it also could just be a breakup film about friends who go through this escalation from moving on with their lives and that's so fascinating to me is that it it really can be whatever you want from it and and what's also really cool is that both of those like layers either this dense thematic allegorical layer or this very simplistic um story of the end of a relationship they both work just as effectively because of like you said the words and the emotion and the humanity that he puts into these really dense interesting unique one-of-a-kind characters um i think that's great i think beyond that you know there's just a couple elements that i think work really well i mean in terms of writing obviously he has an ability to write suspense and escalation when this movie starts yeah descending into hell it is a visceral experience for the viewer i mean it is intense as you just get this like pit in your stomach sense of dread as like bit by pit they pave the road to destruction and what's also really cool about that and i think this is just a really cool singular choice from a writer is is the decision by mcdonough that i think you just wouldn't really think to do this in your first movie this is clearly something he's learned to do as a playwright and as a director but it's this great singular choice to ground our experience of that descent the entire perspective of the film within Podrick alone. Like we only Mm. see what takes place through his eyes across the whole movie. We learn about what's happening as he does. And thus we descend with him as he eventually breaks. And, and like you said, that veneer of niceness and simplicity and buffoonery gives way to quite frankly, a menace and a vengeance. And we feel that descent there because he is the, the eyes through which we go through this journey. I think that's all yeah. in the script. That is all writing choice. And that's uh, a testament to, I, I think, a really brilliant writer at the top of his game with this script. And then, I mean, beyond that, I think what's impressive about this movie is what you already said. It, it's hilarious. I mean, this movie is so <laughs> funny. Uh, there's just a couple of lines that I think are absolutely brilliant. I mean, the conversation between Parik and Siobhan about whether Podrick's the second <laughs> dimmest person on the island might be one of the funniest <laughs> conversations I've ever had. So, like, that's just a singular conversation that's hilarious. But beyond that, there are just, like, these one-liners in this movie that I think are brilliant. I mean, the priest running out of the confessional after Comb being like, you will be pure fucked, is, is one of the funniest lines I've ever seen in a movie. Um, you have the whole thing where at the end of the rant, or he's trying to think of the rant with Calm and the cop, and he says, you want another three things I hate most on Inishirin? Cops, chubby fiddle players. I forgot the third. Like, that's really funny. And then the last one I wanted to highlight is the conversation he has with this poor musician that comes to work with Gom. Oh, no. You're not that student fella from Mr. Umbarn, are you? I am. I'm Declan. Oi. They told me at the post office to try to find that student fella, Declan, from Mr. Umbarn. Yeah, a telegram came for you. From your mammy. My mammy's no longer with us. Not your mammy, sorry. Uh, you, say your mammy, your auntie. Yeah, your auntie. It's about your daddy. What about daddy? A uh, bread van crashed into him. A bread van? Yeah. They said you'd best hurry home to him lest you should die all alone. Die? Or get worse all alone. This is impossible. 
It's not impossible. Red vans crash into people all the time. I know. That's how my mummy died. If it's the same feckin' bread van, I'll kill them. <laughs> oh my god. It's incredible. <laughs> Who thinks of that? It's great. And it's, it's it is dark. Incredible. It is black comedy too. I mean it's 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 yeah. pretty dark, but it's super it's incredibly funny. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um I'm actually, Mike, I, I don't necessarily have anything else on the humor because it it is very much a black comedy, I guess I will note, in terms of, like, there's a lot of funniness to the movie. But I, I would say it, it also, the movie sheds that as it goes along, which actually yes. ties into, I was going to I was gonna say this a little bit earlier, um, but it works here well now, too. You know, you're talking about the writing and the way that the movie is this kind of slow descent. I actually was writing about the pacing of the film. I think it's extremely well paced. I the the sentence I have that I was I was very proud of this idea. It's kind of a sneaky horror movie. You know, it if you think about the tone of the movie, and and I think the moment I pinpointed was when um for the briefest moment you think that Patrick and Comb kind of reconcile. Patrick goes over to Comb's yeah. house. They have a, a nice little moment. Um, and then with actually a pretty, pretty uh, menacing score moment, you hear the the sound as Colm throws his remaining four fingers on the door, uh, fulfilling his promise. And I feel like at that moment, you also sort of tense up because you're like, oh, this movie isn't going to have a pleasant ending. No. Like it's impossible. Like, like, no. And, and it's also, like I said, sort of signals like we're going to things are going to from this moment on just kind of progressively get worse. Um, yep. And it's actually that was maybe something that I think I definitely needed to think about it and go back to it to appreciate. Not unlike, for example, Goodfellas, the way that the end of Goodfellas suddenly turns something that was like, oh, we're having fun into we're not having fun. This is this is really anxiety inducing. And I think the first time viewing, you almost are supposed to respond with, like, dislike. And yeah. I, I think this might be similar, that the first time you watch it, he lulls you into the sense of security at the beginning. It's got all these great jokes. It's got these kind of actually pretty lovable characters for the most part, at least at first. Mm -hmm. um, this, this beautiful, idyllic setting. And then, yeah, it just slowly starts tipping the scales and then you hit that moment and from then on it's like oh no this is just going to keep getting nastier and nastier uh yeah it's i didn't appreciate it in the moment but in hindsight i think that's actually really brilliant and also like i said it helps with the pacing of the movie a lot yeah but it, it also and i mean i remember when we were first talking about it before you had seen it i was really trying not to play my hand because this is a movie that i i left with I didn't have as strong a negative reaction as you. I wasn't like, I definitely was like, oh, I really liked that. I think it was really good and thought provoking. But I I did definitely have a like, I'm not sure I enjoyed that. And yeah. that's because in a lot of ways, this movie, it's just gutting. And yeah. it ends in a gutter. I mean, it gets as low as it possibly can. And then the movie just ends um, between, I mean, rip Jenny, obviously. Ooh, brutal. <laughs> Let's just say it now. Brutal. But then even like the conversation between like Dominic and Siobhan that ends with there goes that dream. Yeah. It, it just ends on a note of despair. And like you said, ugliness and brutality and, and quite frankly, meanness. Yeah. That makes it hard to recommend and, and definitely leaves. I, I think 
I would be surprised if anyone didn't leave it on the first viewing a little bit unsure about where they stand with the movie. Yeah. Um, unless you truly went in as like a, a neutral observer, if you are invested in it at all on an emotional level, it drops out and then leaves you at the bottom. So yeah. I, I just want to make sure that you're not alone with that. I think that is um, by far, and maybe we'll talk about this later in our next section, but that's by far the most conflicting part of the movie for me is like where it leaves us and what we're supposed to do with that. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause that first experience, man, I mean, good gravy. It is just a, a, a gut punch. And then it's like, okay, thanks for coming to the movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's it. Um, which you're right. Once you can take a step back from it is just, it is more admirable than it is enjoyable, but it is certainly admirable. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's so it's so gutting, but it's so effective, right? And and yeah, you know, it for me anyways, it took a little while to recognize how effective it was. But yeah, it's and and there's so much that has to go right to I also think, you know, it's funny, you said that, that a lot of that or you said that that's so much of that is the writing, but it is the filmmaking too. And and it is like Yeah. I, I think about the shot of um the shot of Padrick when he's in bed and he's in the the narration or the the voiceover is the letter he's written to his sister where he's telling her that everything is fine and he doesn't want to move to the mainland and as he's saying that in the letter and he even i think says like jenny misses you we see him in bed alone jenny's dead looking the saddest i've ever looked at anyone look my entire life and it's just it's just awful it's just the worst feeling i've ever had in a movie maybe not ever but yeah, it's so well, it, heavy. Um, well, and that's what that's what's so compelling about the film, on a visual sense. And maybe this is a good transition to another topic. Yeah, because I I think what strikes me about this movie and really struck me, I'm grateful I got to see it in theaters, is that this is far and away the most beautiful movie McDonough's made. You know, he has really cool shots like in In Bruges. You know, I think of like the bell tower or the scene where he's walking. Um, where Gleason's walking through the playground to shoot Farrell's character and the and his cloak's flapping around the gun. But like what McDonough's always been more interested than in those shots, and I think you can tell in a lot of his movies, is the dialogue. Yeah. And this is really the first movie that I've seen of his that is just like beautiful. And yeah. and the opening thirty minutes to forty five minutes of this film is like a travel brochure. You are like, oh my God, Ireland is amazing this is the most beautiful place on earth i would live in this village for the rest of my life and then as the tone of the movie shifts the visual language of it changes yes it becomes increasingly oppressive the shot where he is waving goodbye to his sister and standing on the cliff Mm. suddenly what was gorgeous this whole movie which is like these cliffs of ireland becomes a prison it becomes a visual reminder that it's it's almost like Rorschach, right? <laughs> um, yeah. In the Watchmen, it's like I'm you're you're stuck in here with me. <laughs> like as this character makes a dark turn, the visual language surrounding Podrick also becomes increasingly oppressive, increasingly dark. Like you're saying, increasingly despairing and depressive yeah. and and horrifying in a lot of ways. And and I think that's one of those subtle parts of this movie that. Uh, on the second rewatch caught me more than almost anything. And then it all builds to, you know, the shot on the beach, which I think is one of the most 
amazing shots in terms of framing that we've seen this year where these two men have this incredible gutting conversation that is either about the the doom that they've brought into each other's lives and will continue to bring for the rest of their lives on this earth or it's about the nature of violence and escalation yeah. you pick all but i i don't want to get back into the writing all to say that shot again because of how it's framed and how they're having this conversation and how it looks captures the utter emptiness that now exists between these just like soul ravaged people as they basically look into the abyss that they're prepared to live in for the rest of their lives because of this conflict yeah um that's all captured in the visual medium of this movie and that's amazing and it's not something i actually thought he had in him so that's that's just one thing i wanted to shout out that cinematography and direction i totally agree with that i want to call out cool kind of special shout out too that 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 scene is what they used for all of the promotional like posters and stuff of the movie, which is actually kind of a clever choice because I think if you're like me now, so, you know, I might be wearing too much into this because most people probably don't think about that, but, or, or maybe a lot of people don't think about that. But for me, like the movie, I'm kind of waiting for this moment that I, I know I saw and I'm thinking like, what does that moment mean? Like, is that a reconciliation? Is that, so when it finally comes and not only is it, the heaviest, darkest moment of the movie, but it's also the end and you're just done and you're yeah. like, oh, that's a pretty bold choice and, and I don't know, a pretty, a pretty powerful one. It's, it'd be like putting, you know, they didn't put the giant battle on all the posters for the Avengers, right? Like that's a no, pretty yeah, interesting yeah. call that I think really paid off for people who like those kinds of details. Um, you know, I would actually just briefly, we may not have too much to say on this, but I would just briefly expand from you know, you're talking about the cinematography. I would actually say what what I wrote down, not maybe the most uh, nuanced takes on a movie ever, but I wrote down what works from a technical standpoint, everything. I think it is, and I think it's particularly notable, kind of in line with what you're talking about in terms of the evolution of, of his um, cinematography. And obviously he's choosing good people to work with and things like that. But I would say that, something cool with McDonough is you, you kind of see him evolve from a playwright who makes, who's making a movie to a filmmaker over the course of his movies. Yeah. Now, obviously I love yeah. him Bruges. I would still say I probably like him Bruges more than his other movies, but as a movie, I, I think you see a clear evolution as thing, as time goes on and ending with this one, I think this is essentially technically perfect. I think the, um, this, you know, actually, I really wanted to call out the set design is unreal. It's so yeah. I wrote like, did they just build a pre-paved a pre-paved roads Irish island? They didn't, by the way, for what it's worth. It's actually they had to do a lot of complicated stuff. Um, this was going to be one of my stray thoughts, but I think I can sneak it up here. The house of um, Colm is shot on a different island than the house of Patrick. And what? Yeah. And the houses are the islands are actually meant to aid in the characterization of the characters because Colm's house is in a very rocky island and Patrick's house is a much more idyllic, grassy, mm. beautiful, flowy. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So things like that. Like so they were doing a and, lot of really clever work. But the net effect even like Go ahead. Well, I was like, even the idea that like Podrick's house is like it's like in a cramped area. Like yeah. he's in community. And Colm is off in this secluded kind of pocket. Yeah, um, yeah that's so interesting. Sorry, go on. No, no, absolutely. I think just all of that speaks that. to on it. the the set design is just so good. And and 
is you it it really sells the verisimilitude of it too right you you buy into this time and place that that we're putting you into um and then you know I, and then i think the music is incredible the the all of the background characters all of the all of the details of the houses and the things that just look so period accurate i'll be honest i don't know if they are but certainly like i said it, it transports you in a way that i don't think i would say in bruges or three billboards accomplishes not that they're necessarily trying to in the same way well um the, is, the, this, is this his first period piece it could be, and, and actually, I was gonna make the connection to when when you saw Inglorious Bastards, right? And you're like, yeah. "Oh, I didn't know he, he could do this." And similarly, it's a period piece, and it's taking the person's style but applying it to a very different era. Um, hmm. So it could just be that effect, I suppose. That's true too. But even so, like like if that's true or not, it's still, it still it still represents an incredible technical accomplishment, I think, by him and his team. Yeah, I agree. No, I'm definitely not trying to discredit the point. I was more thinking out loud. Yeah, I, I guess think that's an interesting observation. Modern movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I think it, it's funny because without necessarily trying to, you have hit upon the fact, and I remember seeing this somewhere else too, that it, that we do demand a lot more in terms of technicality of filmmaking from period pieces than we do uh, contemporary pieces because, you know, you as the watcher are engaging much more with the environment in that context, right? If it's set yeah, now, yeah. you sort your eyes sort of gloss over everything that just looks familiar to you and you're like, yeah, that's just that's just a room. That's what I expect like a room in a house to look like. But when it's a period piece, you you know, you can't help but wander around like, oh, look at their sink. That's like I guess that's probably what they have to do because they have to walk in water. Oh, look at that. That's kind of interesting. You know, you're, you're prying through everything. You're probing everything. Um, again, even like the total absence of paved roads or any, I think like any mechanical vehicle, except like boats, right? Um, yeah. All yeah. of that, I think, just so aids the the space that you enter into. Um, well, what else you got, Mike? I've been talking a little bit for about, about all that. Well, I mean, I think it's probably it's about time that we talk about the cast, because yeah. if you're going to talk about what worked in this movie, we already went through it a little bit with the distinctive voices. But the performances of this movie are, are perfect. Uh, I mean, you already said that about the the technical aspect. The performative aspect of this movie is also um, there. There are no notes. I have nothing to add. I think every major actor in this film uh, knows the job and nails it. So. I think the big four are Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keegan. And all four of them are just stellar. Um, I guess if you if you don't mind, I'll jump in first because um, I want to talk about Colin Farrell. Yeah. I think his Podrick is just like, it steals the movie. Um, he captures this simplistic kindness. And like you said, almost a naivety, almost a buffoonery over a little bit of, of, of a dunce. At least that's what you're led to believe in the first 30 minutes of this movie. Mm -hmm. But then what's impressive about performance is you watch it shift. And, and I really noted three major blocks of his performance. You have that that niceness at the beginning. You have that sadness over the loss and the confusion that defines the middle. And then you have the bubbling up of the rage that ultimately dominates the end of the film. Right. And Colin Farrell embodies all three of these 
perfectly. And not only that, I think this is even more important, stitches them together in a way that makes them feel holistic to this character. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like his character is making sudden jumps into being a different kind of person. It's that all of these attributes were within him as this person who thinks that being nice should be enough to basically avoid suffering or loss or whatever in this world. And you're watching them seep out as this situation compresses upon him as there is no escape. And ultimately, quite frankly, as the situation of his life changes. And that's where you start also getting into the nihilism of this film about like, do people really change or are they always just beasts all along and the circumstances kept them from being that way? We can talk about that another time. All I want to say is that Colin Farrell captures each of those things in a way that I, I think is a tour de force. Um, I think the scene that should have won him an Oscar, and I'll just say that right now, I cannot believe he didn't win. This is going to go down as a huge mistake, I think, when we look back on this year. But the scene that everyone's going to remember about this performance is obviously the scene in the night, the bar, where he's talking about being nice. You, Colin Darley, do you know what you used to be? No, Parik, what did I used to be? Nice. You used to be nice, didn't you not? And now, do you know what you are? Not nice. Ah, oh, well, I suppose niceness doesn't last then, does it, Pollock? But will I tell you something that does last? What? And I don't say something stupid like music. Music lasts. Knew it! And paintings last, and poetry lasts. So does niceness. Do you know who we remember? for how nice they was in the 17th century. Who? Absolutely no one. Yet we all remember the music at the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. Well, I don't, so there goes that theory. And anyway, we're talking about niceness. Not what's his name. And my mommy, she was nice. I remember her. And my daddy, he was nice. I remember him and my sister. She's nice. I'll remember her forever. I'll remember her. And who else will? Who else will what? Remember Siobhan and your niceness. No one will. In 50 years' time, no one will remember any of us. Yet the music of a man who lived two centuries ago. Yet, she says like he's English. Come on, Boric. I don't give a feck about Mozart or Borvalvin, or any of them funny name feckers. I'm Parik Sulawan. And I'm nice. So you'd rather be friends with this fellow, would you? Fellow who beats his own son black and blue every night that he's not fiddling with him. I never told him that, Daddy. He's, he's just drunk now. You used to be nice. Or did you never used to be? Oh, God. Maybe you never used to be. And yeah, I mean, that that alone is is give a, give the man his Oscar because uh, it's stunning. It's stunning. Work. Which, again, amazing writing as well. But yeah, I think it. it um, yeah, I, I, I'm just in total agreement for all of that. Uh, not a big not a not a Fraser head, huh? I see how it is, Mike. You just no, you just don't no, believe in, no. in long term justice okay, for, let's do for this. wrong. Let's, let's do this right now. Let's do this right now. <laughs> I love the Mummy. I grew up on Bedazzled, which is a bad movie, but I've seen it a lot. Um, Unreal that you reached for Bedazzled before George of the Jungle. 
unreal. Yeah, whatever. They're all the same. <laughs> Brutal. Brendan Fraser is a nostalgic god for me. What is driving me crazy is that people are talking about this almost like it's a makeup Oscar. And it you're is. Like, what should Brendan Fraser have won an Oscar for? The Mummy. Like what? No, he should not have won an Oscar for The Mummy, John. It's been too Stop long it. since you saw The Mummy. <laughs> Stop it. I <laughs> love Brendan Fraser. I, I actually, I've heard great things about The Whale. I haven't seen it, so I can't I can't bash it too much. Well, you're an Aronofsky um, hater I, from way back. I'm not, like, super different, so I'm not going to necessarily disagree. I've actually heard it's by far his worst movie. So, anyway, that's near here and there. I mean, at the end of the day, I agree. I, just I think have not heard what, anyone praise the movie, like, like legitimately. Yeah. I've only heard it's, people... Everyone has praised the performance. I think it's probably a great performance, but yeah, I have not heard a single is. person say they like the movie. Everyone's just like, oh, it's, like, transformative. Brandon Fraser did great. How's the movie? Uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What I and I think it's it's the hard part of this year is that both Colin Farrell and Kate Blanchett just ran up against people with really strong narratives outside of their films. Both of them gave great performances. I'm not in any way saying Michelle Yeoh does not deserve an Oscar, but I do think in hindsight we're going to look back on Tar and what Colin Farrell does in this movie and just be like these are two of the best performances of like the last decade yeah. because they are fully embodied characters that were created out of nothing that are just achievements. So um, Brendan Fraser sucks. Yeah. Colin Farrell's a god. Mike hates Brendan Fraser. Mike hates my Michelle Yeoh. We get it. See <laughs> how it is? There it is. Battle so, lines John, are drawn. You're a, you're, a, you're a grouchy prick. Do you want to talk about Brendan Gleeson? <laughs> Brutal. I guess I deserve it a little bit, but I don't know if I deserved it that much. Brendan Gleeson has like quietly become like one of my favorite actors maybe ever. I think yeah, oh God, yeah. between yeah. in Bruges, oh, I'm blanking. Mike, what's the other one in Ireland? Calvary. Calvary. I kept thinking Crucible. Unbelievable between, performance. Yeah. In Bruges, Calvary, and this is just is just an unreal trio. I think what is funny about this movie is it's the first time he was playing a character that and you know, we might be getting into some of the later conversation here. It's the first time he's playing a character that I personally judge to be like the the moral wrong of the movie i mean he is literally the antagonist just in terms of driving the action but i also like his other characters are i would say characterized as like surprisingly moral if complex um yeah but this character is i would almost say surprisingly immoral is almost would almost be Mm -hmm. my take um entirely unlikable yeah that's for sure i absolutely i i think i I already related this to you mike so i'll just i'll just say now for anyone listening there was a lot a a surprising and and disturbing amount of discourse i found online of people thinking that his character at the beginning of the movie was in any way behaving rationally i just want you to know (laughs) if you think that uh you're, You're you know, you have sociopathic tendencies. Let's just put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you need to understand what the words emotional abuse mean. And then maybe go talk to a psychologist or something because you got problems. Because, yeah, his character at the beginning of the movie, before any of the things start going down halfway through, is already, in my opinion, acting pretty vehement or, or pretty um, horrifically. And... It is a very interesting turn for him. I actually think in some ways his arc is the one I've thought about more than Padrick's just because it's that a lot sense, subtler. Yeah. I think that yeah. Padrick's, first of all, he's the point of view character. So, you know, we're, we're more in tune with him. But Colm, 
it's so much more interesting trying to pinpoint where he ends up at the end of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Because by the end, he's the one who seems vaguely interested in reconciliation, not enough to, you know, force it, but he's the one who actually asks, maybe we're done now? Maybe we, like, reach the status quo? And, of course, has that brutal return from Patrick that we already talked about. Um but yeah, I think he he has to actually do a very interesting juggling act throughout the movie and really really sells it. Um yeah. Just does an incredible just does incredible work. I'm checking if it's in my uh stray thoughts cuz I keep trampling on my stray thoughts. Uh it's not. He is also a very gifted fiddle player. And every all of the fiddle playing, at least until he can't anymore in the movie, yeah. was was done by him. So that's kind of that's fun. pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's neat. Yeah, just real quick, I actually I love the point you made about that he doesn't get to play this kind of like character very often in these other movies. Um, really interesting thing that I think got pointed out on the Big Picture podcast. So shout to them. But it is really interesting that essentially him and Colin Farrell flip characters in terms of tone between this and in Bruges, where hmm. he is very much the the soft and optimistic and kind of naive at times seeming um, good guy of in Bruges. And while he deals with Colin Farrell, who's very much at this point nihilistic and broken and 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 mean-spirited in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it was just really interesting to see that them that them flip those two things tonally. Yeah. Um, for this part, because it, like you said, it's just not a part in terms of the vitriol that you usually expect from Brendan Gleeson. So I thought that was an interesting point that I had not thought about until I heard uh, other podcasters talk about it. Not a sponsor. I like that, too, because <laughs> I think it speaks to there is a, a through line of McDonough's work, I think. And I think he's conscious of that a- and, and knowingly cast them men. in 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 opposing roles to what they had before i i totally agree with that yeah uh i'll just kind of keep going real quick and you know I'll, I'll basically i'll stick you with talking about dominic and say that carrie condon as uh patrick's sister uh who's frankly the name is in front of me but i just know if i try to say it i will mispronounce it siobhan. i'm not sure if they say her name in the movie what siobhan yeah they siobhan? They it's siobhan oh well it's okay so it's pronounced much different than how it's written they're, siobhan they're right. all spelled they're all spelled very strangely if you which did you know that, that patrick yeah. is the ancestor of the name patrick seems obvious once you know it no. but i didn't until i until i saw it in the trivia for this movie <laughs> um siobhan uh also does an amazing job obviously i think that yeah oh i think God. that she represents it's very very critical to the storytelling of the movie that she leaves two thirds of the way through, or maybe three fifths of the way yeah. through, because yeah. I think she's sort of the stabilizing force throughout. She's the one who's, and, and you know, there's also a lot of dialogue about this movie as a discussion of um, male loneliness. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that is, yeah. you know, her character is why that really lands because for the first half of the movie, she's doing so much work within the context of the relationships of all the men around her, right? She's the one who has to go and yeah. try to reconcile them together. When she when that's not really successful, she's the one helping Padrick feel better. She's the one who yells at Colm. She's the one even who is sort of willing to put up Dominic, even though uh, he kind of messes that yeah. up. Um, 
and even as the one in whom Dominic finds a hope of like, oh, you know, maybe I'll maybe something amazing and beautiful will happen in my life. And it's like, no, nah, buddy, it's not. Um, so I think it's so critical that all of this kind of virtue and hope is wrapped up in this character. And then she's just ripped out of the heart of the movie. Right. Yeah. And now you're just Absolutely. left feeling alone and empty. I will register that I don't love the idea that like the only woman character exists only in sort of only in relationship with all of these other characters. If you kind of think about it, there's something about mm -hmm. that that is, I, I, I don't know. It, it's, I think about like in Bruges is similar, right? Where it's like, yeah, like yeah. not a very strong female character. Yeah. He, he tends to, yeah. and you know, three billboards is the exception. Cause obviously Francis McDormand, but I think for those two movies in Bruges and this one, not to say they're not strong characters as female characters, but it's interesting how in the context of the story, they exist mostly for the sake of their relationship with the main characters. And in this movie, she exists mostly for the purpose of then being taken out and leaving our main characters with yeah. nothing. Um, that's not exactly yeah. bad, but it's, it's kind of complex. Like I, I can't quite wrap my head around how to, no. how to deal with that. That's well, a little bit of an aside. She's amazing as an actor though. We, we should have just, limited to that so yeah she does an incredible incredible work with that yeah and i don't i think this is a something we butt up against with embridge too and we'll butt up against it i'm sure every time we see a mcdonough movie but as an allegory that happens right she she conveys an idea more than sometimes she is a person or a a a fully realized human being um and like you said as an allegorical figure, she is kind of the, she's the straight man of the film or the straight woman in the film in terms of like, she's the sane one watching the insanity. Right. But she's also this allegorical kind of figure for like intelligence fleeing this Island. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm sure you could even read a thing of like, for a woman to follow her dream, she has to get away from men. I mean, that's even like part of it too. I also really um, appreciated these, these deeply lonely men. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I also so, yeah, really I appreciated, I read somewhere, like, if you really think about it, she left the island to go to an active war zone. Yeah, and, like, there's yeah, something yeah. really telling about that. Kind of in line of what you were saying earlier, too, of, like, there's almost this sense over the course of the movie of, like, the real horror is here, not necessarily there. Yeah. Um, put, put a pin in that. Let's finish the performances. I want to get back to that exact thought yeah, in a yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... But first, let's knock out the last the last person, which is Barry Keegan as Dominic. I actually don't have a ton to say here other than this was like a stealthy best supporting actor performance. I agree. Did he, like he didn't get nominated, one. did he? He did. Him and Gleason Good. both did. I was going to say he should have. Against yeah. Kiwi Kwan. Um, that was over. He was always going to. Yeah, I mean, he was always going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm but, not even unhappy with that. But I mean, yeah, obviously, I yeah. think he did amazing. He's bummer for bummer for Keegan. That's the end of the day. Um, yeah. He's just so interesting. This is one of the characters that watching this movie twice, I changed on the most. Yeah. Uh, first time I saw this movie, he is just unsettling. And I just don't like him. Yeah. And that was like my first reaction was like, well, that's a weirdo. Um, and you kind of pick up that he's the dunce. You get all that. But I think the second time through, his mannerisms are so distinct mm. and there's an innocence to him. And and he captures the way that this island is like infecting him. Like he's just he's the the innocent blank slate that's absorbing all the the toxicity around him. Yeah. That's like trapped in this place in which he's this environment in which he's growing up. And I just think he does a great job of capturing that. I mean, he just he he is like 
such a gifted young performer in terms of his physicality, in terms of his tonal work, in terms of the way that he just delivers lines. I, I don't know if there's a, I can't really think of a, a like under 30, which I'm assuming he is actor who can kind of do the breadth of that kind of stuff as well as he does. Yeah. He really feels like the next Colin Farrell of he's like destined for McDonough work for the next 20 years of his career because of just how well he delivers this script. Um, just a really fascinating performance. I'm not sure if you have many thoughts. I don't. I, I just I, really, I, it's funny. I, I was going to yeah. say virtually the same thing. I think it's I think it's designed this way that when you watch the movie, I feel like I even did it within one viewing because spoilers, hopefully. I mean, we've been spoiling the whole movie already. So like when he dies, I think. Well, actually, earlier than that, when when the film, which it never quite confirms, but when the film hints at the nature of the abuse that he suffers at his dad, um. And then obviously when he dies at the end, in both cases, oh wait, and then and then thirdly, when he has that unbelievably gutting, it starts out so awkward and cringy when he's, uh, yeah. I guess proposing, I you know he, maybe not proposing kind of, marriage yeah. exactly, but proposing something to um, yeah to 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 uh, Padraig's sister, um, but then even within that, when he has that line, what 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 was it again, Mike? That the dream line? No, I don't. I, there goes that dream. Yeah. 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 Which is just like yeah. in that moment while watching the movie, I was just like, oh, wait, I feel really sad for this character. It obviously things yeah. just get worse. I think it's within the movie, you, they, they really force you to reassess him and yeah. to, to reassess your gut instinct about him and your reaction to him. Cause you're right. I think he's, he's meant to mostly represent what that, what, this context does to naivety to um yeah innocence and it's yeah it's brutal um yeah he did an incredible job uh i also wanted to know mike uh you know th so uh, all the other actors do an amazing work uh those actors also are all irish which is actually really cool i think if you're yeah. gonna make a movie like yeah. this um i think that's the right way to do it there i was about to say essentially all this movie is uh, made by Irish, but that is actually a surprisingly controversial statement. So we may just need to steer clear of it. It is worth mentioning to anyone who doesn't know. Part of the controversy comes from the fact that Martin McDonough is Irish, but has never lived in Ireland full time. He he was born, I believe, in London. I guess I should get this right. Um, and I I read at least a few things from Irish uh, critics and reviewers that were less than pleased with that fact and the nature of the film. Honestly, I don't know how much, I just feel horrifically unqualified to get into that. So I just yeah, don't think it's, that's, that's yeah. I just don't think it's worth <laughs> I, it. Yeah. I, by the way, he was born in London and has essentially never really lived in, in Ireland except for, you know, during projects and stuff like that. So suffice it to say some, for, for some people that's controversy at the very least, it's very cool that there are so many Irish voices in the movie. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anything else for why this movie works, Mike? Yeah. Actually, one last one. And that is, I just want to I wanna shout out something that I thought this movie did really well. And that I really actually thought a number of movies that came out this year did really well. Including Atar also comes to mind. Which is that this year, there were a number of films that were really willing to be unclear 
And yeah. and I think this movie, as McDonough often does, has some moments that are too clear, like it's a little too on the nose. Mm. But for the most part, I think more than some of his even other work, this movie kind of has a, a a grayness and opaqueness to its thematic resonance that I actually really appreciate it. And uh, all which really what that comes across as is I could throw out a number of readings of this movie, one of which we're going to talk about in detail later when we have our dialogue. But but a number of them that I could throw out the wall and see if they stick and they could be what was intended or they could not be. And that's fine either way. And I think that's what's cool about this movie is there is a there's a reader response element to what it portrays that it's not really all that interested in telling you what the intention of the author was. Yeah. Um, some of them are obvious and these are just ones that hit me. I think it, it does has a really fascinating kind of conversation about the danger of vulnerability and friendship. Hmm. You know, when Dominic says to Podrick, it didn't look like bad news. It looked like the weight of uh, had been lifted off his shoulders tonight about how like uh, calm is feeling yeah. after he breaks up with them. That's like everyone's nightmare. Yeah. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a friendship, there's just this nature of friendship. That is, we put ourselves at risk of, someone being happier once we're out of their lives and just the devastation of that. And I think this movie really wrestles with that and depicts that in a ways that I haven't seen in any movies, not to mention like the danger of change. I mean, I think a critical part of this movie is that Podrick doesn't change and Colm does and that's it. Yeah. And that's the death of their friendship in a lot of ways. I think one I was thinking at earlier, another theme of this movie that I really appreciated it's just like the hidden rage that bubbles underneath quote unquote nice places. Mm. And this like really hit hard for me as someone from the South. We talked about this a little bit with Bernie, but there's just like this great dichotomy that we've already touched on of this beautiful place that the most intelligent person, as you pointed out, would rather run into a war zone to escape from. Yeah. Like whatever looks like paradise on its nice surface is actually hell for anyone with like a modicum of sanity in this movie. yeah. And then of course, I think the film does a great job of just really encapsulating the spiral of violence and retaliation and escalation and devastation. And just this entire idea of calm removing his own fingers from his fiddle hand in order to humiliate Podrick, in order to, uh, to taunt him, to basically destroy him by destroying himself. I just think that is a wonderful, like thematic image at the center of this movie that I have been chewing on ever since. So I'm not sure if there's anything thematically from what I said or something else you picked up from the movie, but this is just one of those rich movies that I feel like I could watch a dozen times and come away with an entirely different reading of every single time I do. Yeah. I think that you've, you've located what I would even go so far as to say McDonough's greatest single strength, right? Is that he's, he's created something and this is i mean truthfully this is like what allegory and and morality play and like all of these words we throw around these literary genres and devices this is what they look like at their highest form which is that you can take the movie at total face value but you also are being invited to i actually would be shocked if anyone did because I, I i do have a note of, uh, in a few minutes for what doesn't work that some cases I think it's a little ham-fisted about it, but theoretically you could take the movie at face value, but it's also begging you to to try to start applying these ideas in, in different scales and in different ways. Because like you said, it's playing with all of these themes that invoke much more, um, much more powerful sort of settings and much much more um, 
relevant to us, I guess, is what I would say, sort of situations. It just is so, it's so easy to think about and to dwell on, right? And to, to locate interesting truths or observations about human nature in it, um, which sounds a little pretentious as I say it, but it's true. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, that's the strength of his writing um, and, and it stokes a conversation, if nothing else, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will segue, though, because I did basically just say the point. So I'll just go ahead and get out of the way because I only have I actually only have two things about why this movie doesn't work. And they're one of them is pretty shallow, but I'll start with the one that isn't because we were kind of just talking about it. Um, Again, we're not necessarily qualified to get too much into this. But, you know, I've seen a lot of people who talk about the movie as though it basically is an allegory for the Irish Troubles. I don't think mm. McDonough intended that. I think that he knew that that was a theme and an idea that he wanted to tap into. And the movie does sort of invoke the idea. Obviously, the Irish Civil War is happening as a backdrop to the movie. Um, I think in a couple cases, it's genuinely, I already said the phrase, ham-fisted. There, there are a couple times where I called it as like, again, you roll your eyes and you're like, I get it. Because um, the character will like, specifically call out the war happening over there seemingly unrelated the conversation you're like wow i wonder if that's important to what's happening uh between these two people so that to me you know on a technical level i don't love how obvious it is and then on a bigger level i did read a lot you know i have studied the troubles to a certain degree and reading some of the responses of certain irish critics and, and and writers there is a sense of like I don't know. There's something that's not great about boiling down such a complex topic into an allegory like that. I actually read a metaphor that that someone offered somewhere. And if, you know, if someone finds it offensive, I'm sorry, let me know and we'll talk about. But someone I saw somewhere offered the metaphors who said, what if someone had made a movie about the American Civil War that was an allegory that boiled it down to like a disagreement between two friends? And as much as there is a degree to which you're like, there are thematic elements of something of the American Civil War. Did I I, I say that? I feel like I might have said Irish again. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, I'm also just going to cut that part out. Okay. Um, Even though there are thematic elements of the American Civil War that would be interesting to elucidate in that manner, you as the viewer would also, you know, say like, yeah, but that is also, uh, you know, not... You don't want someone to take away from that. Oh, this must be what the Americans of Horror was about. And in a similar way, I think I, I read enough voices from Irish writers who said they hated the idea that someone would walk away and think that this movie had taught them something about Ireland or about the the Irish troubles. So I think that sure. is just worth putting out there. Again, I don't know how much we can actually dissect it, but... It's it's an in, it, it's a valuable voice, I think, when you're considering a movie like this. No, so I think I think I'm not going to try to dissect it at all. Like you said, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not super interested in like legislating what stories McDonough can and can't tell. I will say, what is interesting is that this, in a lot of ways, is the other side of the coin for something we praised him for which was making this movie more grounded in a time and a place. That's a good because point. I do think you're right. The moment when we do allegories in a non-distinct modern setting, 
you know, like Bruges in modern times or Second Psychopaths or um, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, this is kind of like this opaque, ambiguous setting for this very simplified but deep story, right? A metaphorical story. The moment that you put that in a real conflict or, I mean, because this happened a lot with Three Billboards too. The moment that you put it in a real setting, like the racist South, and it starts making you feel like the director or the writer is simplifying the backdrop as well as these allegorical characters that they're depicting. And it's a lot easier to draw connections between their simplified characters to very real things that are happening that are complicated. Yeah. And I think that's where you're finding people butt up against it. So I, I do wonder if that is like for as much as we praise him for grounding his allegory this time around, if there is an inherent danger to that that is being touched on in those criticisms. And I'm not in any way saying those criticisms are valid. To be clear, I'm saying that that is that might be an interesting side effect of something that we we like on one sense, but that it has a a strong negative side in another one. Yeah. Totally agree. Also totally think that we've reached the end of our ability to continue on on that yeah. specific topic. Absolutely. Um yeah. I will just register that I, I find it funny that a certain reading of the way you just said that implies that Bruges does not exist. So just Yeah, just yeah it that. doesn't. I still well, you, I still don't <laughs> think it does. The words but. you say were <laughs> setting it a real place as opposed to in Bruges, and I just enjoyed again yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. of like yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not real. It's a fairy exist. tale. It's a fairy tale. It's yeah, a fairy yeah. Tale. Um, anyway, so moving on from uh, uh, fake news. Anyway, that's, there's actually a good segue to one of my two what didn't works, yeah. which is connected to this allegory idea. And it's it's kind of a weird question for me, and it actually probably might sound kind of condescending. I don't intend it to be. But is this movie in ways too ambiguous at times for like most people? And I mean that in a way that's distracting. In particular, I'm thinking about the Banshee stalking about the village. Sure. Um, he he has this fairy tale thing, this fable thing that I love, but but there are just moments in his film sometimes, or in particularly with this one and that character in particular, where I'm just like, is that just gonna be distracting and off putting for most viewers? I don't have an answer for that, but I do wonder if sometimes he leans too far into allegorical ambiguity to make a cohesive movie that doesn't distract. Does that make sense? Yeah. I actually totally agree with that. I, I, or I agree with that as an interesting question, but I likewise don't have an answer. And I think it's, it's hard to decide if we can even find one. Um, yeah, but it's an interesting point. And, and it's, it's for actually, frankly, one I'm not totally sure I considered, but you know, I will say the popularity of the movie maybe belies that that's not happening. Um, yeah. But then again, you know, I'm not, I can't gauge what the nature of its popularity is either, if that makes sense. So, uh, yep. you know, cause yeah, maybe, maybe a huge section. So, so like, would you actually, here's an interesting way to, to, to dive into the question. Would you like hesitate in how you pitch the movie to a casual uh, movie goer in your life? Would you like struggle to find like, or would you struggle to recommend it? Not necessarily from the temperament side, which we already talked about, but just from a comprehensibility side. I think if you have hesitance there, mm. then that does betray that. It's like, maybe there's almost too much going on. Or like you said, it, it's a little bit cloaked or it's just not quite, it, it's clouding its own ideas and messaging with, with a lot of these things he likes to do. 
Um, but if you don't feel yeah. that, then I would say maybe that's a sign that's like, oh, it doesn't really, it's not really too much of a problem. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Like, I don't think if I was pitching the movie, I'd be like, oh, but beware, there's a random banshee woman. That doesn't make much sense. Um, like, I, and maybe that's a good way to think about it is it doesn't, it doesn't cost the movie anything, but I'm not sure how much it adds to it. Like, yeah. I'm not sure it elevates the movie. Like, I, I remember I listened to some people talk about what the Banshee might represent, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. But I did not leave the movie being like, oh, I wonder what that was about. I you agree. know what I mean? Yeah. And and so maybe it's more of a missed opportunity than it is a what didn't work. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. Um, <laughs> My only other negative one isn't a negative one, and we already mentioned it. It's just a very nasty movie. It's just a very yeah. negative, nihil- I would argue borderline nihilistic <laughs> Um, yep. <laughs> just, yeah. just tough time. And that's not bad. That's not actually what holds it back. Cause it's trying to be that and succeeds wildly. Uh, I guess I'm just noting that, you know, that makes it not very fun to watch. It just very, uh, I, I will guess I will say hard to recommend to a certain degree. And yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to recommend. It's also hard to imagine. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but so I I did the one semi rewatch and after that I did think to myself I don't know if I'm ever going to rewatch this again at yep. least soon right yep so again yep. not exactly negative or not exactly what holds it back but just uh, there's no other place to put that comment so I, I put it here no I, I put this is going to be my least watched of his movies outside of billboards I mean I, I've never wanted to see three billboards again so yeah. it's not the least um and that is because it is at its core mean spirited. Yeah. And you know, when I recommend embrace to people, there's a way, and this is going to sound really, really dark. I think I know what you're going to say. But I'm like, it's a great movie. It's hilarious. There is a child murder in it, but apart from that scene, wow. it's, wow. it's a really, it's a really rewatchable movie, right? Yeah. 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 I can't say that about this movie because at its, foundation it is dark bleak and mean yeah <laughs> and that is like there is no part of this movie that is ever not those attributes so in a sense that that in and of itself makes it hard to recommend because it's like if you're not in for just the the darkness of the human condition it's not for you and that's also going to make it pretty un- unrewatchable i would imagine going forward can you imagine what kind of what kind of unsophisticated people aren't just always ready to sign up for the darkness of the human condition. I mean, you know me any given day. I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm ready to, you know, just dive into it. Just show me the abyss. I will make the abyss. Can you imagine making a movie in which a child gets shot in the face in a church and that's not your darkest film or even darkest (laughs) moment of your film? (laughs) Uh, Brutal, brutal takes. Uh, anything else, Mike, for what holds this movie back? No. Right. Uh, generally speaking, I, I love this movie. I want to say one more time. I think it's more admirable than it is enjoyable. It is more thought-provoking than it is a fun hang. But overall, I think it's one of the best films of last year. And it's actually and it's worth... with me. It's really, it, it is worth noting, uh, I guess, a point I should have made earlier. On that note, I, I do think it's also valuable to mention that not all movies have to be fun to watch. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I engage in a lot of dialogue in the video game sphere, and I think it's a little bit more acute there because we associate video games with 
frankly, like lower pure entertainment than than we do other forms of art, even though they are art. I, I think one actually really interesting example, just as a brief tangent, Mike, have you ever heard of a game called Spec Ops The Line from the no. late 2000s? So it's fascinating because on the surface, it looks like a really like dumb, you know, modern warfare-esque shooter. Um, but the game is actually, it, it was actually pretty widely acclaimed because it purposefully presents itself like that just so it can pull the rug out from under you. And it's it's literally a retelling of Hearts uh, of... Uh, Heart of Darkness, um, just set in like in like the uh, you know sort of unnamed desert war, uh, you know American dev- desert war, and mm. it prompted a lot of these kinds of conversations because the game by nature starts out with very like oh like normal shooting fun game we're killing bad guys, and then slowly becomes this descent into hell that that it also inv- inflicts upon you the player. And so by the end, there, so it prompts this question of should these things, you can't recommend it for being fun, but it is powerful and thought provoking. And so there's just this interesting thing that we come up against in entertainment of, you know, what's the relative value of a work being enjoyable? And there's no one right answer, right? I think like ultimately mediums need some of both. You need... You know, you and I, we did a whole episode about Pacific Rim. We love dumb, fun entertainment. Um, yeah. But it's important that there's a place for that, but there's also a place for this, which is, you know, yeah, fundamentally not that. I think you're right. I think that's well said. Cool. Uh, well, let's take a break real quick, and then we'll come back in a minute talking about some stray thoughts about the movie. Hey guys welcome back in this part of the podcast mike and i have each collected some stray thoughts uh we generally just trade back and forth uh you know trivia about the movie things we notice whatever it happens to be mike i'm gonna go first because uh i get to i'm the one talking better performance colin farrell in this movie or colin farrell as penguin in the batman <laughs> uh. you gotta think about it though right come on Come on, meet me here. Uh, you did not know. The first time you saw the Penguin the Batman, you did not know that that was Colin Farrell. I'll give him that. He's got a lot of makeup on, that's for sure. A lot um, of makeup. And we all know that the more makeup means the better performance. That's just a fact. I mean, that that is what the Oscars seem to think. Anyway, I'll stop being mean to Brendan Fraser. Um, um, Jesus Yeah, Christ, I you relax. know, I really wish that some point in this movie he was just like, I'm walking here. And just like, I don't know. That's my big one impersonation. Uh, this movie, John, I do love him in the big one. I do love it. I mean, that's great. You do. I know it. Uh, and you like that movie because it supports billionaires and you're, you're, yeah, we should do that yeah. sometime. And by that, I mean just the ending because I don't want to rewatch that movie again. Uh, I was just thinking the exact same thing. I was like, no, I'm not going to rewatch that whole movie. Yeah, nope. <laughs> I'm good. Oh, man. Okay, John, it's that time of the year. Worst hang. This is a tough one. I actually think this is one of the hardest ones. I'm so glad you did it because I didn't write it and I wanted to make sure we did it. I I think this might be one of the hardest ones. Is Calm or Lewin Davis worth saying? Now, there's a very important question here. Am I hanging with Calm as Podrick or just like me? 
Because uh, Calm doesn't seem like a dick to anyone else. Like he's let's, he's let's make it interesting, John. Let's make it interesting. Yeah. You are yourself, but he's treating you like your Patrick. <laughs> um actually it's funny because in a way, doesn't that make it easier? Because like worse hang, like he's not trying to do he's explicitly like, hey, we're good, just don't talk to me. Yeah. And like, is that uh. actually worse than someone who's gonna be around you? And just drag you down into the pits of despair and, like, you know, bleakness and nihilism and just ugliness. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say we got to give this one to Calm. We, you know, I just don't think there's another option here. As in, you think he's the worst hang? Oh, I'm, excuse me. I would rather hang with Calm. Oh, okay. so, good. So, good, 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 good. <laughs> You were oh horrified for a moment there. I think it makes it it makes it really easy because it's also kind of like who would you like to make music with? And you're like, well, if I make music with Lewin Davis, he's gonna bang my wife, so I probably yeah. shouldn't do that. Yeah, probably not not what you want. Got there. Uh, Colm seems seems great. Loves his musician friends. Actually, he's sitting there having a grand old time with them every time we see him in the bar. That's the truth. Hey, I think I think That's- we got another one in the belt. Good. We got Good. it. We did it. Sorry, sorry, Tyler. Uh, I gotta say, this is the most important work we do on this podcast. Yeah. Continuing to litigate this question. Constant relitigation. Yeah, that's that's really important. Um, I'm gonna sprinkle in some trivia throughout my stray thoughts because there was actually a lot of fun things I read about this movie. Uh, Jenny, the miniature donkey that portrays Colin Farrell's pet, uh, first of all, was also named Jenny, which they actually do a lot with animals because it just helps them respond to cues. Uh, had not been in a movie before, was not a trained animal actor, and quote-unquote, seemed to detest the experience. Farrell joked that she was the biggest diva on set, and they had to bring in a second donkey in order to double as her because she kept on making issues for the filming of the, of the movie. It's particularly funny given that the characterization of the donkey in the movie is delightful. Because yes. that's why you're so, it hurts so much when she dies, because you love that donkey up until then. And you love her because Patrick loves her, and it's so great. So I just love knowing that the donkey was actually kind of a dick the whole time. Yeah, I got another Jenny fact for you. McDonough fell Ooh. in love with Jenny and paid for her to retire to the rest of her days in the fields of Ireland. Oh, which that's might a, be that's a great story. A euphemism for they killed her, but I'm going to choose <laughs> to believe that she is living happily somewhere. Else. I don't think the liberalism of the Hollywood machine would allow. For that it would be like a scandal like yeah. if, if it was true that, that she was actually murdered <laughs> i think people i think there would be rioting you know at least in hollywood um this is just a small one it takes two to tango is an anachronism in this movie the tango existed but that phrase doesn't really come up until the 50s which is a you know 10 to 20 years after the movie so huh. uh you know just an interesting little thing well, it's a shit movie now. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so what we're saying is the writing is terrible. Yeah. He didn't do, do his some research. research, McDonough. Yeah. It's free. You know what? I- I'm disappointed, frankly. I will never forget this line. It's in the confession with Calm. And the priest says, do you think God gives a damn about miniature donkeys, Calm? And he says, I fear he doesn't. And I fear that's where it's all gone wrong. I'm so mad right now because my next one was going to be, Mike, can you confirm 
Does God care about miniature donkeys dying? <laughs> yes, With, he from does. your from your elevated position of seminary degrees and whatever, is that is that an accurate assessment? I, yeah. I you know we're joking, but I do want to know. It is an amazing line. It I've is. been thinking about it constantly. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's in a lot of ways the summarizing principle of the movie, um, but also just a great line. Uh, and yes, God yeah. does care about miniature donkeys, but not full size donkeys. Those are from the devil. We're okay with that. I mean, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I can live with. I can live with that world. Um, yeah, man, great line, and yeah, good call out. Good to know. Good to know about miniature donkeys, dogs and cats. God's in on. Oh no, those are soulless beasts. Cool. Love that we got there. Okay, made to be consumed. Um, so, Jesus. Barry uh, Keoghan and Colin Farrell. So Dominic and and Patrick, obviously lived in the same apartment while they were shooting the film in Ireland. Keoghan admits that he drove Farrell crazy by leaving messes and eating Farrell's favorite cereal. That's an actual quote. <laughs> Farrell. <laughs> uh, Colin Farrell said, I just, favorite cereal is the greatest detail yeah, I've ever gotten in my entire life. Um, Colin Farrell said the experience was quote unquote, like living in an episode of the real world. So <laughs> that's wonderful. I like to imagine some of that came out on screen. I, I don't know, but I, I like to imagine. I will say the whole cast seemed like they're having a lot of fun making this movie. And I actually have heard that McDonough yeah. runs a really loose like like ship. Like he's not a director who's like, I need to uh traumatize my actors to get a performance. See David Fincher. He's not the James Cameron of uh yeah. you know. So I've actually heard drama. he's he's yeah. kind of fun to work with. So I would not be surprised that that tone came to the set as well. I'd be interested if some of that comes from theater experience too. Yeah. Cause a theater is like, you know, it, you have to build up a lot of camaraderie because it, it there's such a, you know, the physical component is so demanding. So I, I wonder if that aids him there, you know, I don't know. he's good at building community. That's an interesting um, question. This is actually, in fact, I'm looking at it to see if I need to move it to the end. Cause it's maybe one of the, my favorite things I've ever read. Yeah. I'm going to move it to the end. So I'm going to do a different one. Um, okay. Colin Farrell summed up the story of the movie as the disintegration of joy, which Oof. brutal. Uh, he said he, he continues at the beginning of the movie. Okay. So this part isn't a quote. So, um, you know, he basically says at the beginning of the movie, and then this is the quote, it's like, he's just won the lottery. He's so happy and content and connected, but by the end he has turned into someone who believes there is a place for violence in the world and that it doesn't even need to be justified and he can't find any of the joy that he once had in his life. Ooh. I'm only laughing because it's so brutal, Ooh. but it's interesting. But like, it's also a very good rating of his own character, which obviously he would have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a great summation of the character. I, I, I just don't know if I've ever often read actors talk about their characters so insightfully. Um, I'm sure they do, but I just had found the quote. and was like, that's amazing. Uh, the disintegration of joy. Oh, oh. That's wild. Uh, that anyways, get your quote. watch. Watch with your family. Yeah, good family movie. Christmas. Um, my next one is Gleason letting his dog lick his finger stump is the most upsetting part of this movie, and you cannot change my mind. Now I need some. I need you to give some extra context because Do is it upsetting to you from a hygienic? Like you're saying, like hygienics perspective, from the dog's health, from Gleason's health from just the the visual metaphor like like because to me it's just it's so upsetting in so many ways but 
I just want to zero in on what is particularly tripping your wire here. Well, the answer to that question, from my perspective, would be yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Good to... You know, they often say podcasts are a great medium for elucidation and conversation. And Mike, you're a great podcaster. I don't tell you that often enough. <laughs> Oh, thank you, bud. I mean, I, just yep. all of the above, John. Option D, just all of it. It's. <laughs> I don't know why you need me to expand on this, John. I'm actually more alarmed about your character over you wanting to know why this is upsetting to me than anything else you've ever said to me in my entire life. So. You know what? It's because I don't know if you care more about the dog or about Colm. Because I would say it's more upsetting to me because I think, like, that can't be good for that dog. Yeah, That just sure. can't be. That that poor that poor that poor girl can't handle that. And Colm, you're kind of like, well, I mean, he did he did cut off his own fingers, so like yeah, whatever, you know, whatever. Who's been, been there? Much about him. Case of the Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, it's possible that I've done some sort of counting wrong, but this is my last straight thought. Yeah, you, so, you jumped you, know. you jumped me on one, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, this is the one I was gonna say earlier, but it's actually the coolest one that I wanted to leave for the end. The last scene of the movie was shot on the last day of filming. Martin McDonough said he did not know at the beginning of the script whether the film would have, quote-unquote, a happier ending or a sadder ending. It could have gone either way. Huh. It was only after the rest of the movie was shot and elements of the script were incorporated into the film that the story gained its tone, and it was then decided what the end would be and the last scene was shot. Wow. I think that's particularly interesting because I would characterize the ending as, like, sad you know i think it it obviously was a sad ending but it's so complex in its sadness right it's, it's yeah it's just wild to me that it's like that part wasn't always there that they they found that during filming uh that's that's crazy to me i've i would never have guessed that in a million years god that's amazing yeah that's yeah. actually kind of stunning um it's a little bit I, I don't know if this is quite accurate but i think a little bit about you and i reference and i've been rewatching it recently but you and i often reference breaking bad and and the way that the writing style of the show famously was that they didn't actually plan ahead that much they would yeah. for like a season or for like several episodes but they wanted to be able to go back to what they had been d doing and create themes out of it right yeah. rather than trying to plan everything ahead ahead of time and in, in a way, it makes me think of that, right? Because it was yeah. almost like you couldn't have thought of that good of an ending just sitting in a room writing. You had to live the experience of the movie a little bit to understand where the characters were going to end up. So I just think it's really cool. That is amazing. No, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, man, that's really cool. Um, well, so I got I got two more now. Yeah. First one's personal, John. And it's as simple as this. Is this movie your worst nightmare as an Enneagram 9? You're oh anxious God. that you've upset someone. That's something that you go you go through. And then you discover well, <laughs> that you have. And it's not in any way your fault. And that they're going to cut off their own fingers in response to you trying to make it right. Is that your worst nightmare? Well, like, legitimately, I think it speaks to why I so easily tagged Colm's behavior as emotional abuse, where other, again, psychopathic people were like, oh, man, the man just wants peace and quiet. And it's like, do you all realize what relationship means? <laughs> it means that you can, you can, you can build up 
a obligation towards someone else to do them better than just one day saying we're never going to talk again. Yeah. Like that is just possible. And, and like, it is actually something I would genuinely get, uh, which I sort of am right now, genuinely get like sort of up, uh, up on a soapbox about, because I'm just, I just want everyone to know that's like, no, you, you can't like, you are in the wrong for doing that. And cause you know, Colm keeps making this. He's like, I just want to be by my, like, I should be able to do that. It's like, yeah, you can end a relationship, yeah. But you might have an obligation greater than simply no longer talking to someone. Yeah. That's unreal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all that to say, yes, of course it is. It is like just it's not only is it my worst nightmare, but it is something that I could just pinpoint as like, oh, yeah, that is just that is just not a good, not a good thing. Hot <laughs> takes here. Great. Not a good hot, thing. Hot takes. Yeah. John <laughs> Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff here. All right. I got one last one, John. And this is actually just a curiosity. Um, I think two unanswered questions of the movie, and I just want to get your thoughts. How do you think Dominic got into the water? And do you think Colm's masterpiece is a piece of shit? (laughs) I think... So this is actually really fascinating. You also sneakily snuck in two stray thoughts. I did. I don't know if those are closely related. Um, We didn't mention, by the way, the incredible visual storytelling little turn of at the beginning of the movie dominic is actually introduced by holding up the little thing and being like what is this like what i found this thing like what do you think it's for and of course at the end of the movie we see i don't know if that's his main purpose but at least one purpose would be to fish a body out of the water yeah and of course since it's dominic there's some narrative resonance there um i'm inclined i think dominic you almost like i think with dominic it's almost impossible purposefully like you couldn't even make a guess i I would say like yeah we just don't get enough about the character to even know like you know if there's an intentional side of it or not and i i actually would even go further and say like the unknowing the the unknowableness of it is also part of the point there's something arbitrary about it yeah yeah Yeah. and and again it, it almost gets back to the horror side of it too that it's 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 so just sitting there and you just can't do anything about it um the music one is a lot funnier of a thing to discuss because i've seen different takes i've actually i was surprised to see a lot of people say that like he had again i I guess i'm just a calm hater i was surprised to see certain people be like oh like you know he makes this beautiful music and he wants to write it now i will say that was more controversial takes because most of the responses to that was like I thought the point was specifically that he made not very good music. And <laughs> and what I do think is like actually intentional. I, I think the movie doesn't really have a say one way or the other. No, that. No, what no. is intentional is that whether or not it's good music or not, it's certainly not interesting music. It's certainly not because I think we, we didn't even talk about this, but like what of the mo- I think the first moment that I knew that he was being placed as not a virtuous protagonist like that he didn't really have a leg to stand on is when he compares his situation to mozart yeah and i and you know actually mike you were saying earlier i'm i'm worried about aspects of this movie go over people's heads i do wonder if everyone picks up on how absolutely unreal that comparison is it would be genuinely like mike saying at the age of 50 hey you know, I need to focus on my basketball. You think about Michael Jordan. People will remember Michael Jordan. So there's a value to me 
paying attention to my basketball life. And of course, every one of us would look at you and say, you do realize how far the gap is between you and Michael Jordan, right? And how unlikely it is you are going to be remembered the way Michael Jordan is remembered for basketball. Yeah. Unlikely to the point of being essentially impossible. Yeah. So I think like, again, I, I would think most people pick up on that, but again, reading some responses, maybe not. Um, so yeah, all of that to say, I think personally, I didn't think it was great, but the most important thing is it was unremarkable. It yeah. kind of just was what he would have made. And I was like, okay. So yeah. What do you think? Were you there for it? Colm fan from way back? Yeah, yeah. I think, he, you know, I, I have his first album. <laughs> it okay. My, it changed my life. Before he, um, before he sold out, yeah. Yeah, before he sold out and cut all his fingers off and couldn't make music anymore. Um, yeah. I never, you know, it is punk as hell. I didn't think about that. It is pretty like, punk rock. Yeah. 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 No, I, I don't have an answer. I mean, from what I heard, I wasn't impressed. But at the same time, I mean, I think there's this, like, an absurdity to it. Because he's on this island that nothing's going to escape from, um, so yeah. like much less his masterpiece. It's not going to hop the ocean, so you're just gotta like okay. I, I do think you're right. It doesn't tell us. It's probably mediocre. More important than that, he has, has a wrong size vision of himself and his life, yeah. and it's led him to do horrible things. So, yeah. Um, also, I think, we I we, think, we did. Or go ahead. No, I was gonna say I think the the pot the uh, Dominic one is more interesting. I think. Yeah, is, is that the breaking of suicide that comes from that rejection of just like he's not going to get a happy ending or or what? Or did he slip and fall? I, I don't know. I don't I think that's intentionally vague. Or even is, is it related to, to abuse in some way? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, there's it's purposefully, I think, leaves it very open. Yeah. Um, just going back for a second, I was going to mention we didn't call out probably the greatest moment of shot in front of the movie is when he goes on this whole rant. And after Padraig has left, uh, Siobhan gently corrects him that Mozart is from the 17th century. Uh, <laughs> it's just so, and I, but you know, and it's also really important. It's funny enough. I just got it wrong. Mozart was in the 18th century, whatever. The correction is what matters because it is important for you as a viewer to recognize that the movie knows that he's full of shit, right? Yeah, that that is the perspective of the movie. Again, not everyone seems to have picked up on that, but you know, I think that's a really fun moment uh, yeah. that I enjoy. It's amazing, absolutely. A, as a Colm hater from way back, yeah. Um, yeah. they've been Mumford and Sons. Go on, <laughs> always, always and forever. Uh, I don't think they're even a very culturally referent or relevant reference anymore. So I really won that battle. Um, okay. <laughs> And, and just like that, I was just like Colm. So for this last part of the podcast, we call it kind of a dialogue. It's a little bit loose, but essentially Mike and I just like to try and dive in a little bit deeper to some of the spiritual and um, kind of deeper narrative thematic elements of the film. This is a funny one because in the way I feel like we've been doing this the whole time, because the movie so demands that you yeah. access it through this medium. It's not like... It's not like um, Pacific Rim. I don't know why I'm being up on that today, but it's not like Pacific Rim where like we had to sort of work to be able to do this. This movie is begging you to do it. I, I think everyone watching the movie has to have some sort of spiritual thinking going through their heads. Um, but with that in mind, Mike, what, how would you like to proceed? What would you like to discuss here? Yeah, I think we've already tackled a lot of it, but I think the one that really 
sticks with me in terms of maybe not needing a deeper dive, but the, the part of this film that has really um, just become lodged in my brain is the way that it really explores the this duality that kind of exists within all of us. And, and it's basically this idea, and, and this is a reading I think I picked up from various interviews, and, and this is by no means something that McDonough has actually said he was intending, but essentially it goes like this, that one of the things that's taking place in this movie is that McDonough as a creative person has really taken these two parts of the human condition that we all wrestle with, which is on one hand, we just want to enjoy our lives. We want to be present. We want to have relationships. We want to, you know, experience the short time that we have on this earth. And then there's this other competing ego side of us that wants to use what time we have to achieve, essentially to produce something meaningful. And basically what he's done is he's taken both these parts of our humanity, he's made them distinct individuals, and then he's had one of them break up with the other. And yeah. in doing so has depicted just both the tension of it, but also the, uh, the self-inflicted violence that comes out of this kind of tension that we all wrestle with. In particular, when it comes to, I think, art creation and living for pleasure. Or I think even more provocatively, and this is what I really want to focus on, just this like fundamental question that I think all spiritual literature to some degree wrestles with, which is what's a life well lived? Is it best spent basically serving others or is it going to be a life that is spent serving ourselves? And then what do we use our limited nature of time to pursue when it comes to those two options? So that was kind of rambly, but broadly speaking, that was the, the, the thematic resonance of the movie that I just can't stop coming back to and i think in a lot of ways it's summarized by one of my favorite little rants of the movie uh, in which colm lays into podrick about aimless chatting i was too harsh yesterday yesterday he says i know well you was too harsh yesterday and today i just uh, just have this tremendous sense of time slipping away in me podrick and i think i need to spend the time i've left thinking and composing and just try not to listen to any more of the dull things that you have to say for yourself, but I'm sorry about it. I am like. Are you dying? No, I'm not dying. But then you've loads of time. For chatting. Aye. For aimless chatting. Not for aimless chatting, for good, normal chatting. So we'll keep aimlessly chatting and my life will keep dwindling, and in 12 years I'll die with nothing to show for it, bar the chats I've had with a limited man, is that it? I said not aimless chatting. I said good, normal chatting. The other night, two hours you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey's shite that day. Two hours, Parig. I timed it. Well, it wasn't me little donkey's shite. Was it? It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. None of it helps me, do you understand? None of it helps me. So yeah, that's, I think, what's been stuck with me, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, John. I mean, I think that that speech is so... It, it's. I want to say it's almost halfway through the movie, and it is so important, partially because it's the first time that uh, Padraig has really stood up for his perspective in this entire um sort of disagreement uh but it also gives voice to that tension like you're talking about and and does it very eloquently as a writer like martin mcdonough would be able to do 
I think it's kind of telling, and and obviously I don't have a, a scientific rigorous backing for this assertion. I would guess that most people would find themselves naturally inclined towards one response over the other. Yeah. Where there, there's a certain almost binary of, do you tend to think of a fulfilled life in terms of self-fulfillment or in terms of accomplishment that's visible by others? And, you know, as with all questions like this, I think the first place to start is that it's not, you know, despite the fact that I present it as a binary, it's not a binary. It's something we all struggle with in various degrees. And it's also something where there's no right answer. It's not that, you know, I think it's, I think you can't boil down as like, oh, well, obviously, you know, I would be inclined to say, for example, obviously it's more better. It's, it is better to be fulfilled on your own terms and, and, in a, and with the people in immediate relationship around you. That doesn't surprise anyone. That's completely congruent with my personality. But if the world was made up entirely of people like that, there's a lot of things that wouldn't happen. Yeah. And there's there's obviously a value and an enrichment towards having people that do think do, you know, lean towards the second, do lean towards this idea of the valuable thing is accomplishment. Um so, you know, a lot of rambling to say there's no answer to the question, but I think that what's really valuable and you know this is an exercise that happens a lot in in spirituality it's very valuable to try to consider what keeps you or or what why you're averse towards the perspective that you don't lean into yeah you know? that's interesting so so i think like in my so in terms of me i think i have especially in the last few years certainly try to do in in therapy and different things work exploring why I'm not very interested in the accomplishments I have the equation and I'm so borderline obsessed with the relational side of the equation of like, again, what it means to have a, a good fulfilled life. And often I think the reason for the value of the exercise is that, you know, if there is a right answer, it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably in the balancing of the ideas and understanding why you're drawn towards one can really help with that you know in the context of the movie i think it's it's staggering to me that and obviously it is an allegory and a morality play and that's why but like if this was really happening in front of me the obvious thing is like y'all there's a middle ground here right like there's yeah. a way that we can get both of these agendas done in such a way that is honoring towards both of your desires for your lives um, sort of what I mean by the obligations that Colm would have towards Podrick. Basically saying like, hey, we can get you to this place if this is what you feel like you need, but you can't get there or, or there is something unjust or unright by ignoring that entire other half of life, right? Yeah. Um, and so I don't know. I, I think it's a little bit unfocused, but um, I, I think that that's sort of where I find the most personal value out of examining my relationship with that dichotomy, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's something very compelling to me about this movie, because I, I do think you're right. I think people more likely than not lean a certain way, depending on their personality type. And what I think is fascinating about that is that this movie, broadly speaking, I think it's hard to argue, I mean, we've mentioned this multiple times, comes down really hard on calm and thus 
in a sense, begs you to be judgmental of his perspective. And yet, if you think about this dualistically, Calm's worldview is probably closer to what drives McDonough than Podrick's, yeah. right? So the creator of this probably identifies with this drive to produce something meaningful, to leave something behind, to have a legacy, to, through art, kind of cheat death. That's probably a driving principle of his life, and yet that is clearly what he is bringing under judgment most harshly in this film. And I think that's very interesting because I think in a sense, that kind of is almost speaking to what you're saying, which is what he's clearly doing through this is investigating his own tendency, what he leans towards. He is in some ways being harsher on what is most natural to him probably than on what he may see as being more natural to others. And I I do think there's something very productive about that of rather than being like, which one's better investigate. Why am I obsessed with the one and neglectful Mm. of the other? And I think that's, that's been true for me. I think that's very relatable as someone who on the other side of this thing is very much a, a achiever, a striver an active, I want to get things done. I feel like the majority of my short thus far adult life has been learning to be present, has been learning to put down productivity, has been learning to do things for the sake of enjoyment, um, to to not miss my life, right? Or the relationships in it. So there's something very interesting there about like, is this film in a sense through dualism capturing this great trajectory that we always have to, that we're all gonna have to go on, which is to deconstruct why we're obsessed with one so that we can lean a little bit further into the other. Um, Now, again, I don't know if that's what McDonough's doing though, because I think he's obviously way more critical of the person pursuing the one and not the other. So I'm not sure how that speaks into it, but I do think that balance that you're talking about and the things that we have to wrestle with to achieve that balance and to strengthen one part of this and to let go of another is a very helpful way to think about the film. You know, it's also funny though, because I totally agree with all of that. Obviously I think I'm really fascinated by this thing you brought up of the film being, the film almost taking sides from a certain perspective. I think the ending sort of belies that because it's, it, you know, there's something important about Podrick's transformation. And and really the question I think with his transformation is, is this who he was the whole time? Was this always sitting here, this, this rage, this desire to forcefully right the world when I find it wrong. And up to then he just hadn't found anything wrong enough to have to do that. Um, but that's kind of a tangent. I think that the other interesting thing about the way that the movie sort of takes sides against Colm, we've already shouted out is the fact that he is also look he's he's trying to attain a goal that is impossible whereas again if we're talking about the, the dichotomy between them Patrick's goal is not only possible but is one that he probably would would accomplish right if his yeah. if in his worldview of I'm a good person by being in good relationship essentially with the people around me I guess I should say until this movie happens, theoretically, this is something he's doing and he's doing well. Now, maybe I've just hit upon some of the point of the movie, which is that he also, by the end of the movie, is incapable of doing that. Um, That might be, you know, again, telling in some way. But I I do kind of think about that, too, especially like you're saying, from the author's perspective, I wonder if there's a certain self-indictment there. Um, because the other fascinating thing about the dichotomy, and then I'll, I'll pass to you because I'm talking a little bit, um, 
the other fascinating thing about the dichotomy is the unrealisticness of and the pridefulness of the one versus the other mm. right that if you think about it in the nature of again self-fulfillment living in the present um focusing on relationships that is something that is so tangible to everyone and to all human experience and the first one while perhaps there's a nobility to the idea of making an achievement that will stand i think the other lesson of spirituality over and over again is the impossibility of it yeah you know you think about you think about ozymandias you think yeah. about um and we have and you know they're a rich trove of literature that points this out yeah 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 yeah, that that there's you know all things fade eventually and all names stop being spoken and so you know there's a futility to the first one that from a spiritual side i think the exciting thing about the living in the present is that you basically bypass the question you're just like i in a sense it's sort of like i don't have to worry about the endless march of time because not i'm not engaged with a race against that yeah i'm not trying to beat that because i can't yeah um so i don't know again i don't know exactly where you go from that but or well i i think in a sense and maybe this is uh something you can conclude on but as i i, I think you're that's it i mean that's the answer quite frankly um if i can ah, we found it we solved the problem that's the meaning we did of life. It. hey let's um, just wrap up no. shop like you know <laughs> i'm just kidding but what's really funny is as i heard you lay that out it actually what it really did was laid me to reassess Podrick because I think what's so interesting is that maybe Podrick isn't the example of just living in the present because what is fascinating about this movie is that neither of these people's peace can exist without um, the control or at least the agreement of people outside of themselves or circumstance outside of themselves. Like calm, Mm. his achievement of peace or happiness or meaning or fulfillment will only come if he's remembered but what's interesting about Podrick is that his only comes from people liking him. And not only people, but the people he wants to like him, liking him. It's still not something about about a, a, a posture within himself. It's not something within himself at all. There's still something. His peace and his meaning is going to come in basically or necessitates the agreement and, and the active participation of things outside of himself. And thus, yeah. it's not actually maybe at a role either. Maybe it's not being present. Maybe he's actually just showing a different form of what Buddhists would call attachment that is equally as healthy as Kolb's and equally as outside of his control and as equally as needing to be shredded um, as Kolb's, even if it's more subtle. So maybe the third way that we're looking for is, is not only a space between them, but a space of internal peace in existence and in, in living out from ourselves in the present moment that neither of them truly embody at all. Now, by that metric, would you, how would you feel about the assertion that the, the quote unquote center present balance of the movie is being presented by Shaovin, by his yeah. sister? Mm, that's I fascinating. Because, because if you think about it, she has, she embodies both she she kind of embodies both she's true to her relationships but she also isn't letting attachment dictate how she lives her life and how she finds self-fulfillment um i think like the key part of that is that she does go away to the job but she invites padrick with her and it's padrick who doesn't go 
because he's too attached to yeah i need the the relationships i formed here to work right yeah or at least i I guess maybe arguably by the end of the movie it's more that i need vengeance for the ways that the relationships here haven't worked either way he's holding on where she has both let go but again not like comb letting go in such a way that you're dishonoring the presence and the relationships of your life but is still doing doing justice to those i guess and doing honor to that it's an interesting idea Hey, everybody. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, we've had a lot of fun today. Have we had fun today, Mike? Uh, yeah, I am five fingers short of a good time. Cool. Uh, we do have a final question we've each prepared for each other. Uh, I did want to note, on the next episode, we are going to be discussing Minority Report, the 2002 sci-fi action film directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Tom cruise uh, you a big minority report guy mike i'm i'm you know as a person who wants to restructure this podcast around removing body parts like mm. when the eyes get popped out in that movie so we got a real theme i didn't it's, think this about podcast that. Have... about colin farrell and cutting off body parts the funny thing is i can think of at least three movies that that hit the criteria <laughs> which is surprising i wouldn't have thought that he's got a thing going for him you know yeah man uh awesome well we do have a final question we've each prepared for you i'm you know i'm gonna get this out of the way because like whatever this is this is the obvious one yeah i thought about this for all of 10 seconds yep mike have you ever been in a position where you would conceivably trade a finger to never have to talk to a particular person (laughs) (laughs) that's not where i thought you were going with that but that is that's not where you thought i was going with that that seemed obvious to me oh i I thought of that that while watching the movie john you and i have we've actually talked about this on multiple questions on this podcast there are staff meetings that i would cut off a finger to get out of i mean (laughs) there are there are so many conversations that i would remove body parts to not be in anymore uh, yes. it, it does feel like cheating if you bring in like workplace, right? Because it's yeah. like everyone knows. I mean, but you're but then again, you're totally right. Um, Dude, you don't understand. Okay, this is this is my flock. I love them, but as a pastor, I get roped into conversations that I'm immediately just like, oh god, no. Um, usually about politics and worldview that I'm just like, I would cut off my hand right now to not be here anymore. Yeah, I think that's a little bit too real, but also correct. I'm not going to disagree with you. So, geez, we, we went to a dark place, but yeah. then again, I'm the one who asked the question. So who's really to blame? That's a good question. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I got I got a – oh, this is the question of our time. Are you ready for this, John? Yeah, hit me. You are ready? I, I think so. Are you sure? No. <laughs> John, have you seen not Avatar 2 yet? well guys thank you for listening to this episode uh is that your question for real (laughs) no but i want you to answer it tell us the truth john Um, i have it it's been a lot going on you know is this like is this the conversation you cut off a finger to get out of (laughs) already have way ahead of you john here's my real question 
Uh, and this was the one I thought you were going to say, and this is pretty obvious, but which, uh, which character are you in our friendship? Oh, I think that was obvious too. I'm, uh, I'm Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. That checks yeah, out. You, you thought that too. Okay. I'm, that's, yeah. I'm actually happy knowing that a little disturbed that of, of the future it paints. So, but then again, I feel better because I don't think you have a passion that would override <laughs> my that, logic. that would consume your desire to continue to have relationships the way that you know really we should have been talking about this whole movie as just like calm music appreciator right yeah like sure. the man just cares about his music and and really really maybe we're the bad guys i just don't think you'll have something that you care about that much no. besides like you know so yeah. I feel pretty I feel pretty comfortable. You think I might uh cut off some fingers next time Audie like wants me not to record this podcast? I'm like sorry Audie. I can't raise you. I kind you. of feel like every, <laughs> I kind of feel like everyone you know would sort of just be like, "Yeah, okay." Like we wouldn't even, we would just sort of take it in stride. We just what, be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. What Mike, if I, Mike's, what Mike's, if, Mike's weird. What if I was like I need to stop talking to people so I can beg out minority report pots? It's this is what they're gonna remember me by it's my oh, masterpiece uh any any closing thoughts mike no i think that's a good one for me i think we i think we had it thank you all again so much for listening we'll see you on the next episode uh and take care until then bye feckin john